0: everyone, and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am your host Cooper Wilhelm, and today I am talking to Frank Klassen and Sharon Wright about their amazing book, The Magic of Rogues: Necromancers in Early Tudor England. It is a joy. It is in addition to being a really wonderful scholastic work looking at the history of magic on trial in the period before the big witch trial hoopla. It is also probably the funniest book about magic that I have read in the last couple of years. It is somewhere in between a Coen Brothers movie and the Dude's Rock ethos. It is just extraordinary. I I highly recommend it, but the chat was great and I hope you certainly enjoy it when we get through the Plague Magic Minute, which we are about to do. And today's Plague Magic Minute comes to us from a 1703 book written by a man named Martin Martin. And here is an abridged version of the title, which is incredibly long. A description of the Western Islands of Scotland, containing a full account of their situation, extent, soils, product, harbours, bays, tides, anchoring places, and fisheries, the ancient and modern government, religion, and customs of the inhabitants, particularly of their druids, heathen temples, monasteries, churches, chapels, antiquities, monuments, forts, caves, and other curiosities of art and nature, of their admirable and expeditious way of curing most diseases by simples of their own product, a particular account of the second sight, or faculty of foreseeing things to come by way of vision, so common among them a brief hint of methods to improve trade in that country, both by sea and land, with a new map, etc, etc, and so on. And in this book, Martin Martin tells us of an incident that fell out with his landlord. My landlord, having one of his family sick of a fever, asked my book as a singular favor for a few moments. I was not a little surprised at the honest man's request, he being illiterate, and when he told me the reason of it, I was no less amazed, for it was to fan the patient's face with the leaves of the book, and this he did at night. He sought the book next morning, and again in the evening, and then thanked me for so great a favor, and told me the sick person was much better by it, and thus I understood that they had an ancient custom of fanning the face of the sick with the leaves of of the Bible. So we have here a form of healing ritual that involves using a sacred text to produce a kind of healing air into the face of the sick. And I'm I'm sure if people wanted to, they could probably try to uh, adapt this using other texts, you know, sacred or not, I don't know. Give the collected Dunesbury a go if you want to. Of course, all this, you know, in addition to following standard health guidelines, please do not attempt any kind of magical thing instead of wearing masks, getting vaccinated and so on. So that's our Plague Magic Minute. Uh, and now here's the interview, which was a great joy for me and I hope is a great joy for you. So this book is fabulous. So happy that you, you put this together. It's really amazing. And I think before we get started, just to give people a general overview, we're, we're looking at court documents for two trials having to do with magic during the Tudor era and also the magical texts that the defendants were working with. What drew you to the idea of doing this kind of dual approach?
1: First, I think we should make a clarification in the question. So the, the legal documents and then the manuscripts, I work on legal history and Frank works on the the magic manuscripts so we we don't actually have we don't know for sure what magic manuscripts our cases the uh, defendants in our cases were using. But we have a pretty good idea because they were circulating widely. So we just need to be careful about saying 100% for sure that those texts are the ones they were using. It seems pretty certain, especially in the case from Yorkshire with the Mixendale treasure hunters, that the books that Frank identified is definitely the ones that they, they must have had some version or variant of
0: them. Okay. And looking at these at these court cases what picture sort of emerges for us of the kind of place that magic had in society was it was it widespread was there sort of an active market in this sort of thing at this time
2: that's a that's a huge question i mean on the one hand one of the things that these court cases do highlight is that typically at least prior to the witch trials cases for magic were relatively sporadic they didn't happen that often and even during the witch trials themselves as we can see and we got another book coming out in a little while that's gonna that will look at everyday magicians but the during even during the witch trials the people who got in trouble were not typically magic practitioners themselves so on average magic practitioners didn't typically get in trouble with the law very much So actually, cases like this are relatively hard to find, where we've actually got details about here's you know this is here's someone who's actually doing this stuff. They've actually got a copy of the of the Thesaurus spirit tome. They've actually got a copy of this text of treasure hunting magic or whatever it happens to be. So, in that sense, the trial records, at least, are relatively sporadic. Certainly, if the manuscripts are any indication, there were a fair number of people running around who were interested in this kind of stuff, collecting it, and practicing this kind of magic. So, I don't know if that entirely answers your question. I'm, you know, walking around a little bit.
1: If you look at John Stewart, though, who's the cunning man from Yorkshire, who seemed to have, in his possession, some of these magical books, he's more typical of, the kind of magic practitioner that you would find. This group of people who were out running around the moors in Yorkshire looking for treasure, in some ways they were a little more unusual, although treasure hunting was a big pastime in late medieval and Tudor England. But there were a lot of people who practiced cunning, which we would think of as magic. It wasn't infrequent, so I wouldn't want to make it sound like just because the court records don't have a lot of evidence in them, it means that we don't know that there were actually people doing cunning
0: One of the wonderful um, ways in which this book, I think, overturns a lot of assumptions that people have about magic in the past as one big aggregate thing is that if there weren't a lot of cases prosecuting this, I think it leads to questions of like, how seriously was this taken as a crime at this time? And who would have prosecuted it in a situation like this? Because it's forbidden in an ostensible sort of way, but no one seems to be taking it that Seriously, necessarily, unless certain conditions are sort of met. So how rigorously was this sort of thing, were these laws and interdictions enforced at this time?
2: It's pretty sporadic. I mean, there's two court systems here that we're dealing with, and, and there are, of course, more than that in operation. But two principal ones in in England, the one that's principally in charge and principal <laughs> of of dealing with magic are the church courts, mm-hmm. and, and this is part of the reason why I think even Henry's legislation in the in the early part of the of in the first part of the of the 16th century didn't go anywhere because the people were just used to the church courts dealing with it. And I think for the most part, there it, it really depended on the local church, the local courts, the local the local priest, whether or not the bishop was pushing really heavily for it at any at any given time. And so there were some areas where there's n- nobody appears at all in the courts, period, of any kind. You know, uh, in other places more, or you know maybe one person a year or a couple of piece uh, people per year in in church courts, even at a very very low level, people simply doing charms or magical healing or you know or identifying thieves or that kind of thing so as far as the courts are concerned it's pretty sporadic for the most part the issue is social disruption right if people do stuff that disrupts society in some kind of way then the courts are interested in dealing with it and often the cases appear in court simply because the people involved were involved in some other kind of social disruption
1: well, this, I'm trying not to talk over top of Frank while you're recording, <laughs> yeah. but one thing that people need to understand about crime. Of any kind in the past, especially Tudor and late medieval period, is it wasn't like there were policemen who would keep track of what was going on, right? It was the communities that reported things that went wrong. Or it might be your local priest who would report things up the ladder through the ecclesiastical hierarchy. So policing in the pre-modern world is really different than the modern world. So you would report things that bothered you. And we think that magic didn't really bother that many people. What bothered people was fraudulent claims that magic could work. So when people were unhappy with their magician, for whatever reason, because the magic wasn't working maybe, or because the magician was actually a fraud and was just trying to rip them off, then they get reported. So there's probably lots of cunning folk operating without any problem being reported at all for a
0: long time. Okay. So if you're, if you're good at it, this presumably isn't a problem. And Henry's law that my understanding is it was never actually implemented or actually enforced. But Henry's law made witchcraft a capital offense. Right. Is my understanding. But that's typically not the punishment that people received following court cases involving magic what typically happened like what do you what are the stakes for somebody in that sort of scenario what's going to happen
2: we should point out for a start that no one was ever prosecuted under henry's law so henry wow. brings this in and it's, it's overturned a number of years later and it was never it was never put in place probably because the justices just look at this and said what we're going to hang someone for identifying thieves forget it that's just ridiculous I mean, much of it hinged on what the justices wanted to do. So Henry's law, I mean, it's not really until Elizabeth's law that we've actually got something that's workable and actually gets employed, which doesn't happen, of course, until, you know, it's not in place until 1563. So it's relatively late.
1: Henry also was more interested in catching treasure hunters. (laughs) I mean, if you look at the law, it gets called, it's very unfortunate because it becomes called the Witchcraft Act. But if you look at it, It's actually an act that's sort of a big bag of trying to catch all kinds of 'er ne'er-do-wells and and things that we might consider misdemeanors until they are enacted in this bit of legislation. So there's all kinds of things in that law, not just magic and and witchcraft. It's unclear what he meant by witchcraft as well, because no one was prosecuted for witchcraft under that bit of legislation.
0: This actually um, leads into a question that I I wanted to ask and it it feels like a big stupid obvious question But I think it it is worth bringing up which is that treasure hunting seems to be such a big thing at this time Where is this treasure supposedly coming from because I I think uh, most people these days when they hear like buried treasure they think pirates which fair enough, but like Was there just sort of hordes of gold supposedly scattered about England? And what kind of business was this? It would be hordes of silver.
1: Um, And so pirates are close, but think Vikings, right? Think, Think, if we're thinking England, we're thinking that there's been long periods of very dynamic military campaigning that went on between Anglo-Saxons and Vikings. So think about the Staffordshire Horde, which was recently found, I mean, the last decade. And detectorists keep finding things in the ground, right? So one of the things you do when you're a raider, an Anglo-Saxon or a Viking raider, and you have gathered a lot of booty and you're being pursued very hotly by your enemies is you can't lug all of that treasure with you you have to bury it somewhere and you try and bury it in a place that you know well and can come back to and i'm not talking about grave goods either i'm talking about big hordes of treasure so people knew medieval people knew that there were barrows where people ancient people they didn't quite know who they were had been buried with treasure and they also knew that there was quite a lot of buried treasure to be found so it wasn't impossible that you would find it and henry wanted it and in fact the law in England mandated that if you found treasure, it belonged to the king.
2: Oh, okay. So if you
1: find it, it's going to the king. So this is why our treasure hunters in Yorkshire wanted a demon to dig up their treasure because it meant that they weren't committing treason by digging up treasure. The demon was getting it out.
0: (laughs) That is is a wrinkle of this that I never considered, that you can...
2: (laughs) Yeah, whether or not they actually thought that they could get away with it in court is unclear, but I mean, but it is, right? So they, they say explicitly at one point, well, we're not breaking the law because we're not actually putting a spade in the ground. This is
0: like necromantic like entrapment. This is terrible. I, <laughs> I, I've never th- thought about the idea of demon rights before, but this this does seem entirely unacceptable.
2: Demons are a little more difficult to, to prosecute under civil law, though.
0: That is that is entirely fair. I feel like there was an American court case along those lines at some point. In the Anyway, that's not important. We can we can talk about that at some other time. Okay, so we've got these, these court cases with treasure hunting. Well, one of them involves treasure hunting. The other starts with the attempt to locate stolen spoons and then just explodes. And I, I think it's worth pointing out to folks listening to this, this is an important piece of scholarly research this is a wonderful piece of history but it's also i think the funniest book about magic that i have read <laughs> in the last two years because these are sort of coen brothers-esque escapades of just people getting everything wrong all over the place
2: that's exactly right there yeah, the stories are wonderful
0: They're. We were like, I wish we, were we could so, take
2: credit for them.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. we were so excited when we found them because I, like I said, I work on legal history and, and particularly on Northern England and Yorkshire and Frank does the manuscripts, So when we found the case in York and realized that a big chunk of it was actually missing, there was a 18th or 19th century, sorry, Latin transcription And when we went to look back at the manuscripts from the early 1500s, we realized that the canon who had done the transcription had not done the whole thing and that there was a whole bunch more of the story there. We were like super excited and then realized that Frank probably had a pretty good idea of what manuscripts they must have been using and the big parchment circles that they were using. He'd seen them before. So we suddenly had our our project. It was clear. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed the stories.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I they were actually really lovely. And actually, before we sort of get into the, the specifics of each one for a second, just to give people a broad sense of what we're talking about, because I feel like we've alluded to some details, but just to give people a sense of, of where we are. So the, the first case you deal with is William Neville, who hires two cunning men, Nash and Richard Jones. I think he hires four by the end, right? Or like, there's sort of like a whole... Yeah. And, and I am curious... Why does he hire these men and and what do they promise him?
2: Well, it's, it's one of those things where you look at this and you think, okay, what exactly is going on? Are these guys complete shysters? Are they simple con men? It's not altogether clear, right? They seem to know each other. He gets, he hires Nash first, and Nash says, well, you know, I know this guy, and then he goes off to Oxford and and gets involved with with Richard Jones, and Richard Jones has got rooms in Oxford, so he presents himself as a scholar, obviously, and he has books and alchemical equipment and all kinds of stuff. Seems to be practicing a combination of alchemy, necromantic magic, and probably medicine as well, so he seemed to be sort of hitting all three of those and trying to earn a living doing all of that stuff and then they go after other cunning folk as well i mean he hears about these other guys and and goes out goes off he 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 does actually manage to get in touch with two more and there's a fifth one who's turned out to have died so this is quite the selection of these of these local practitioners and the other guys are specialized more in in predictions of the future and in prophecies and that's one of the interesting pieces here they're also turning their hand to prophecies on the side and Finding particularly Welsh prophecies and giving them to their clients to figure out what's going to happen
0: So this is actually interesting because this when when we talk about the idea of like, you know, magic It's technically illegal, but that's really not what anyone gets in trouble for for the most part It seems like this does sort of go into one of the reasons why people do get in trouble at this time, which is that prophecy itself Particularly political prophecy seems to be a source of great consternation with the authorities at this time Could you get into that for a second? But it's a big problem uh, when
1: prophecy is used to do something like predict the date of death of a king, or when prophecy is used to predict some fell thing that's going to happen to someone, then it, people get very concerned about it. I mean, in the strictest sense, prophecy has a long tradition inside Christendom, right? Where It's okay to be a prophet, but people try and ascertain whether or not your prophecy is actually rooted in what the medieval church would have thought was the truth. But prophecy in this case, he was trying to find out, well...
2: He assumed that Henry VIII was going to be killed and there was going to be a Scottish invasion. I mean, you know, so this is incredibly destabilizing and it's destabilizing because obviously William Neville, at least according to some of the, some of the depositions, was actually preparing his house and collecting money so that he could hire, get hired guns, literally, to be on his team when all this chaos came down so that he could actually seize some kind of important position in the ensuing chaos. So he was predicting a fair amount of political chaos, and Henry VIII wasn't Very happy with that at all.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, under Henry's and the Pilgrimage of Grace, which is the uprising in the north, one of the things that were forbidden were nobles to have their own standing armies. To have a livery, which means, you know, you put your, your, the retainers in your household into your, wear your badge. And this is exactly what Neville was hoping to do, right? He was hoping that he would be able to get this news, have a small army, household army of guards from the yeomanry probably, and that he would be able to elevate himself.
0: This Scottish invasion doesn't happen. The other predictions about his older brother dying giving him sort of the estate and all that doesn't actually here's a question right so he's got he's got a whole team of wizards essentially working for him uh, making predictions and um, also trying to locate at the very beginning of this the sort of seed that 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 starts this whole uh, thing is is trying to find stolen spoons do they do they deliver on any of that do they even find the spoons? Well, th- no. As far as we know, he's he seems pretty darn gullible.
1: I mean, as Frank pointed out while we were working on the project, he did try and and check out whether or not the predictions that some of these magicians were making could be trustworthy. But he's by
2: going to other magicians.
1: Yeah, he went to other magicians. But he's in a tough spot. He's a son who's going to be cut out of an inheritance. And he's obviously very concerned and anxious about money. And he's pretty gullible and stupid, actually, (laughs) in some points, you know. But I mean, it's like I guess he's for him in a way, it's like buying a lottery ticket over and over and over again. He just keeps hoping that those numbers will come up for him.
0: And there's like a lot of theatricality that seems to draw him into this web, right? There's, there's, I mean, the, the rooms at Oxford, maybe he was actually doing alchemy or maybe these were just props. I'm, I don't know where you stand on that.
2: Exactly, it's so hard to tell. And then they, they go
0: on a little trip to a castle and someone shows up and tells him something that seems to indicate that he is, you know, the once in future ruler of this castle to some extent. And you speculate that maybe this man was paid to do this? It's possible.
1: It's hard to say because the (laughs) records, you know, you have the records you have. And as a good historian, you can't embellish them. Although it's always so tempting, you know. Well,
2: it seems just too good to be true. This old man accosts them on the road and says, welcome to your own, old Lord. Right. So all of the... I mean, you're you're right. I mean, there there are these sort of theatrical elements to this that are are just wonderful,
1: a part of the theatrics of it, too, is that Neville himself is a terrible poet and wrote about <laughs> this kind of this this fantastic idea of the castle of what was it called? the castle the, the of the
2: Castle of Pleasure. The Castle yeah, of
1: Pleasure. Of
2: and right. so just whole vanity publication, y-
1: so. right? But this whole ca- <laughs> like the, either these magicians really did their homework and knew that he'd written this thing about the castle of pleasure, and were are getting information from his uh, the the servants inside his household. So the whole idea that this prediction could happen surrounding this castle and that he would inherit the whole estate and become a peer of the realm must have really sat. Close to his heart if you even think of the kinds of stuff that he was writing It's a it's almost too good to be true, right?
0: And of course it was but So so it seems like this has all the hallmarks of an elaborate con But at the same time you also mentioned that they weren't that Nash and and Jones were not terribly good at actually getting any money out of him
2: Well, it's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you'd figure if they were really good con men that they'd be better at you know, making sure that the money was rolling in, so that at least it was, as soon as Neville cut them loose, they'd at least be walking away with this bag of money that they'd got. But they didn't seem to be that good at it. So at least, at least the records don't suggest that for what it's worth. So it's 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 difficult to suggest, and this is where it gets tricky because you look at them and say, geez, maybe it's not impossible that we're not that we're reading this incorrectly. It's not impossible that on some level they did believe what they were doing. And one can never quite tell. Which, I, it's,
0: it's, it's a difficult situation to be in, right? Are they, are they bad at magic? Are they bad at being con men? Is there, is there a thing that they are good at in this situation? Which I guess is why they end up going to, to court. But we have a similar situation, I think, with, um, with William Stapleton and, and the treasure hunt. Which, again, you know, <laughs> if this is a bad con job, that's basically kind of like Ocean's Eleven, but it's, but it's a farce. Because this whole team comes together to, to to go looking for treasure, and it's just a mess. Everyone gets lost. A, a beautiful, a beautiful thing. But William Stapleton struck me as sort of a emblematic of this of this sort of ne'er-do-well. Because you've got this story where Lord Leonard Marquis... Um, Marquis? Mar- Mark? Marquis. 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 Amazing. Um, I would never have guessed and it's the best pronunciation that it could possibly be. Does a demonstration with him... To test his abilities and he fails, right? So could you could you describe this situation if, if well, yeah, you he
2: goes he buries some treasure in his own garden and, and hires this 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 monk William Stapleton who's a wall from his monastery and needs to needs to pay a fee in order to become Independent otherwise he's supposed to go back to his his, his monastery so he's looking to get out. Anyway, he gets hired by Lord Leonard Marquis to to be a treasure hunter. He, this the lord the lord uh, uh, buries some treasure in his yard, and and William can't find it. <laughs> but he hires him anyway.
0: <laughs> right. So this is this is the thing that I'm I I I am bedeviled by sort of reading these narratives is that, accepting that these that these sort of wealthy lords who clearly have more money than sense are operating in a world where they, they believe that magic is real and there are people you can pay to do it for you. Why do they keep hiring these people who clearly aren't very good at it, especially in a situation when, because this is illicit, it seems like they need reputations to get clients, yet they're maintaining these reputations despite being demonstrably very bad at what they ostensibly do. So how, how does an economy like that survive?
2: Let, let, let me bring you into the modern world. And you're standing at the checkout counter in the supermarket and you're looking at two magazines. You're looking at maybe Chatelaine and maybe Men's Health. Okay. Um, um, Men's Health is promising you how to get instant free um, sex from, from any woman you want without connection and a uh, six pack abs in six weeks. And they do this every month. A new one, Chatelaine, promising um, sex, okay, uh, women's magazine, promising, promising, you know, um, do these amazing tricks to get him to get him to love you in bed that will, and and again, every, you know, uh, these things seem seem to cycle every month. If they work, surely you'd only need one. But, I mean, here we are again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And people keep buying them because there's always hope. And a hope is a good thing, isn't it? I mean, isn't that good that we're hopeful as human beings?
0: I didn't think of this as being an inspiring story, but it is kind of when you point it out like that. Wish fulfillment.
1: uh, Wish fulfillment is very powerful.
0: This is actually a really important point that you bring up in the book, the idea that The kinds of magic that sort of appear in these manuscripts really appeal to a set, a very sort of gendered set of anxieties and wishes. Could you, could you sort of go deeper into that sort of, like, how does this, when we look at how this sort of shapes the record of magic from this period, is this something that, that speaks more to the kinds of people who are practicing this magic or more to the kinds of clients that they were hoping to attract by offering these kinds of, of services. Why don't you take that one?
2: I mean, I mean, it's all, this is, we call this the magic of rogues, which is, and, and when we think of rogues, these are for the most part, men. There are female, Magical rogues of here and there that are scattered through the literature. It's a wonderful case of of a, of a woman who takes a. a it's actually a, a published account of a woman who takes a, a couple to a for a ride um, looking for fairy treasure. It's a, it's a published account in in, in from uh, later 16th century England. But for the most part, these this is a this is a masculine world, particularly this world of treasure hunting. Uh, but also magic for influence. Try to get influence over superiors or trying to get influence. You know, this these are these are peculiarly masculine spheres. Uh, but I think particularly with a treasure hunting case is nine guys. They're going to go out on the dark moor at night. This is a dark business. They're going to conjure demons, which requires great courage. And, and I mean, if you're going to go do that on a Yorkshire moor in the 16th century where it's cold and it's dark, you know, so there's all kinds of wonderful drama and, and sort of aspects of male bonding here. I mean, yes, it's a it's a it's a thoroughly masculine world, um, and and a sort of thoroughly masculine set of fantasies. Um,
0: and actually, this idea of male bonding um, something that I think this book really draws out. That I think a lot of once again overturns. I think a lot of assumptions people have about the lone magical practitioner off on their own. You know. Conquering the the boundaries of, of time and space in a in a locked cell or something like that these Everybody seems to know each other that there's like a there's a sense of like people are just they're their friends They've met each other. There's like a community happening. I think one of these people um, uh, John Stewart uh, Actually, sorry, it was John Wilkinson has been doing this since he was a kid Yeah, Like What kind of image of a community emerges from all this? Well, this is an
1: excellent question. This kind of networks of magicians is something that Frank and I are hoping to look at in the future more closely. It it requires a lot of digging into archives, which is hard during the pandemic to get in and to do that. But it's clear That magicians knew one another and that they had some of their own specialties and often recommended uh, one another who had at least another uh, fellow magician who had a specialty or kind of a niche area and that they traded books. So not only in this book. On magic of rogues but in the the second one that we have just finished and is hopefully coming out soon we're looking at people who share and copy these ideas and frank you maybe do you want to
2: Everything yeah, well, I that. mean, you, you can see some of this in the manuscripts. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, most of my work in the past has, has had to do with magic manuscripts, and you know, we, we we speculate about how these were transmitted, who had these, and so forth. But here we've got a real clear instantiation of okay, this guy got the text from so and so, and he copied the text, and and oh, there's this missing bit, so they have to get out the they have to get out the missile, so they can copy, so they can figure out how to consecrate this thing because they haven't got that in their magic books. They're copying that into their magic books, or all of the, the things that you know the, we, as a manuscript historian, we've essentially been speculating on, we, we see it all here in, in, in action, right These books being traded back and forth and copied and, and, uh, and so forth. So it's, it's fun to, it's fun to see that, but also magic equipment as well. so that we've actually got the lamina for the conjuration of Oberion. So the actual the actual piece of equipment that's supposed to be used to actually conjure this demon for the purposes of treasure hunting is actually physically passed on as well from, you know, in some cases. So not only, not only the books, but also the equipment.
0: (laughs) And actually speaking of equipment, there's some, some really interesting materia that sort of gets thrown in here that I, I, I want to ask you about in part because I, I was talking about this book with my friend, the Dr. Alexander Cummins, and he pointed to the notable sort of scepter that gets used here. Could you talk a bit about, about the use of this scepter magic, but also how this might relate to the use of scepters as a, as a sign of sort of civil authority around this time.
1: Well, that's a start. A good starting question for Frank because you know about the <laughs> scepters in the manuscripts.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm not sure about all of the prehistory to this, but I'm sure this goes right back into into pre-Christian roots of this material so that I'm sure this is coming through in Arabic and and Hebrew works of magic that form the basis of much of Western uh, Latin ceremonial magic. Certainly in, I mean, it's a symbol of authority, uh, and it's certainly used in that kind of way um, as, a, as a symbol of, uh, and, and the, the line between the wand and the scepter is a, a fuzzy one. Both of them are kind of symbols, or the staff. All of them are kind of symbols of uh, symbols of authority, and so there are there are frequently cases of this exact kind. I mean, it's a wonderful case of co- magic uh, conjuring a bunch of uh, two or three fairies and for, for a ring of invisibility um, that's in the Thesaurus Spirit Tomb or the Treasury of Spirits, and this ends with the, the magician touching the head, the forehead of the of the fairy with this scepter. Um, as a sort of final symbol of this domination of this of this beautiful fairy maiden, after which, of course, he gets to sleep with her, uh, which is which is which is a quite
0: curious and wonderful
2: addition to that to, to that text. Um, but uh, but anyway, it appears the scepters, like swords, uh, appear quite commonly in the ceremony in ceremonial magic. Yeah.
1: You don't see scepters so much when you're thinking about uh, material things that are invested with power that's supernatural in if we're thinking from a Christian context, but it's a really short shift to go from the idea that you have a relic that contains a part of the body of the saint that is a very powerful object that connects humans with the divine to the idea of a scepter representing the, the power of either the mage or um, the king, because we know that scepters were used for uh, regnal purposes, right? Going back as far as we have evidence of it in the British Isles. So, for people to think about scepters as being somehow differently magical, I, I'm not sure that they did. I, what I, they, they were, they were magic, almost in the same way that. Relics were magic, although the church would never agree with that description. They would talk about venerating relics, right? And... Of course, when you're venerating a scepter, now you've gone over the line to something yeah. that's that's in
2: both cases they're invested with with uh, with the power of the divine, and I think that's right. the point. So you you know you'd sketch the symbols of the divine on the on the, on, the, on the scepter itself and consecrate it, and mm-hmm. and in this case in the case of the of the Yorkshire treasure hunters, they had to gild it, so they actually had to have a little bit of gold leaf there in order to actually make their <laughs> not only make the scepter but make it sparkly, so uh, which 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 seemed to be important to them
1: so i mean the thing that the point that that i'm making is that it's not such a huge leap in the late medieval and and early modern imagination that you would have something that was invested with a kind of a force or power they're Mm -hmm. used to that it's
0: just the way that this thing is used is different
2: not sure if that Um, answers your question
0: i I, it does and i i think it also ties into the because i'm i'm curious because i think there's something about like my understanding is like a lot of local authority figures, like the sort of the, the town council almost, would have a scepter, that this was sort of becoming a very localized sort of symbol of power. So I guess it makes sense that there was just sort of be, I don't want to say these would just be lying around, but like, it's a thing you could sort of get a hold of more easily than say, I don't know, a lion's skin belt or something like that.
2: That is uh, correct.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah less sort of gilded and 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 beautiful and officious there something that i also something that struck me as as kind of a novel is the wrong word exactly but like a bit uncommon is this idea of doing a, a magical circle on parchment which shows up here could you talk about because that doesn't that doesn't seem like i my understanding is that you know that this shows up in germany a little bit but like this is not Terribly widespread practice or was it am I am I
2: we don't we don't really know I mean we do know It appears a couple of times in magic text. So we've got we've got two from England um, From this period which which sketch out here's how you do this And then the one example from Germany 17th century example from Germany, which which suggests it's a fairly widely Distributed idea and it makes good sense if you're going to get treasure Because you've got to be able you need you need your portable lab, you know, you've got to be able to take it out into the into the wild for a conjuration and it's also you know i mean the setting up a magic circle. If you follow the the directions in, for example, the the Sworn Book of Honorius or the Liber Iuratus which is a, one of the classic um, medieval grimoires, it's a it's an awful lot of work. You've got to go to an area, you've got to clear it, you have to of any obstructions, you have to lay out a uh, this complicated circle with with stones and and uh, with with swords at the at the points of the compass and wander around and consecrate it and so forth. And that's an awful lot of bother. If if you can do all this ahead of time. Have your your circle literally pre consecrated, and just take it out, whip it down the field, pin it down, and you're good to go. That's that's a that's a real innovation. So I I think it's you know it, it, entrepreneurial at worst, um, creative at best.
0: And just to like, because in, in my head when when I first read this, I was picturing like you know, an eight and a half by eleven sheet of parchment. And they're just all trying to stand on it, or they're sort of like you know each each person has a toe on it, and so it's fine. But this is we're we're talking about a, a single sheet of parchment of you know 9, 12 feet.
2: A strip, yeah. Yeah. They oh, probably st- had to uh, sew it. It's a strip, yeah. It's a yeah. big. It's a big strip. Yeah. It's
1: a big strip, and then they've sewn it. Clever. That's really marvelous. Um, doesn't John Stewart, doesn't he get it from like a cousin of his? That That's right, yeah, because he, 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 he needs
2: virgin us. parchment. Right, so, which so they he just...
1: got it from some cousin of his who could produce the virgin parchment yeah. for him. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that is also one of the problems that these people run into when they're doing their nefarious deeds, is that they can't keep the circle of the conspiracy terribly tight. It seems like everyone has to bring in someone they have to start asking for directions. What goes wrong with the treasure hunt?
1: (laughs) First of all, they're in the West riding of Yorkshire. So what wouldn't go wrong there? You know, (laughs) West riding is just such a wonderfully fantastically interesting and crazy place You you the real problem is people from York So they've got the mayor of York or the former mayor of York and they've got this cunning man John Stewart and they're not locals and the land is rolling, and also the terrain is uh, hard, and it's January, so it's foggy. It may be snowy. They didn't talk about snow in the manuscripts. But if you know that part of Yorkshire, even now, it's a tall order to think about having to wander through fields at night. So they really needed local people. And it's clear that they tried to draw in local people who might have been thinking like they were, that it wouldn't it be great to get this treasure. But they also needed local people who knew the legend, who knew where the treasure was hidden. And so this the legend of this treasure at, at Mixendale was important enough locally that folks knew where it was. In fact, if you go to that area today, there are people who will still be able to tell you where that where that treasure is, right? They'll tell you, they can tell you almost exactly where the Mixendale thing happened.
2: I mean, what's wonderful about this case is, yeah. I mean, as, as Sharon said, they need the local people, so they need the they need the couple, of, they need uh, they need priests, so that they can consecrate this material. They need local people to know where the treasure is and know their way around. It's a bleak area. I mean, there's not a heck of a lot up there. I mean, it's it's much more populated now, post-industrial revolution, because there's all kinds of mining, and industrial operations going on all over the place there. But at this point, it's very sparsely populated, uh, and it's quite desolate. Um, so they end up with nine people in this, in this team, and then, you know, are trying to keep the the whole operation secret as best they can and don't do a very good job of that. So other people start to find out about it. And so we have additional people brought in and finding out about it. And evidently, there are rumors about what they're doing here that go well beyond the group as well. So a big part of the problem here with this group is that they're just not careful about who they tell. And I think it's also part of what the church was upset about because the church kept coming back to the rumors. Yeah. The rumors, the rumors, the rumors, and they're talking to the priest and saying, "Look at the disgrace you brought on the church. Look at the rumors that that are that are all the, you know all the coming going as far as York and all the way through the country. Everybody knows what's going on here. This is a problem. So this is really the stuff that gets them in trouble as much as the magic itself. The fact that they're just not very careful. If they kept their heads down a little bit, if there were fewer of them, they'd been a little bit more circumspect. We wouldn't be having this conversation."
0: Does really seem like good criminals just don't get caught, uh, which is an important lesson for all of us. <laughs> right. Um, right. <laughs> so something that that also is is striking about this particular operation is that you had a you had a single magician who was supposed to stand outside the circle in the way they did this, which is very uncommon in magical texts, but not uncommon in
2: literature. I'm understand. That's tradition. correct. Yeah. Yeah, it's clear they were drawing on, on on literary sources there, or at least they're trying to figure out how to make the text work as best they can. They read the text and they go, geez, that doesn't make any sense. Or they think, geez, we, we want to protect ourselves, so we should have, let's have a consecrated host here. And then they think, well, geez, maybe that... Maybe that won't work because if it's too holy, maybe it'll chase the demons away and we're not going to be able to conjure the demons. So you can see they're trying to, they're they're looking at the text and saying, does this make sense? Does this not make sense? I've heard you're, the magician's supposed to stand outside the circle. I heard this in a sermon or, you know, what have you. What's, what's beautiful about this is... For me, as a guy who looks at the magic manuscripts, you think you think of this as relatively uncomplicated. Well, the magic manuscripts never say that; they wouldn't do that. Well, this is not what happens when it actually gets into someone's hands. They are comparing this to their own experience. They are thinking, "Oh, I heard this sermon about this magician standing outside the circle." They're thinking of uh, what they've read in Chaucer. There's a whole bunch of stuff ends up coming to bring brought to bear on this, and so the real practice of magic is far more muddy and far less stable. Than what you might find in the magic manuscripts themselves,
0: and would something like the court cases that sort of emerge from this would those also start to contribute to people's understandings of how this is supposed to be done? because i I noticed one of the one of the witnesses in this trial says that John Stewart had three be'es that he was keeping under a rock, and that he was he fed each a drop of blood from his pinky. and they were supposedly they were conjectured to be, demonic bees demoniac bees you know epiphanies of satan or something of that sort and my presumption is of course that none of that actually happened there were no bees i don't know if that's true but i can see someone taking that and running with it once they hear it in the court case like oh i want to do necromancy i need to get some bees or something like that Do, do these court cases start to contribute to the sort of lore around these things or are these sort of sealed up
1: um, it depends on how and when they were holding the, the proceedings. So in a case like this, where they're worried about heresy, it would be very unlikely that local people would be allowed to come into the chambers of the court officials to oversee. So there's nothing that I know of in the depositions that prevent people from who are, are are giving the deposition from talking about what they know amongst their neighbors and one of the ways in which cases get into the consistory courts those are the bishop's courts is by by rumor circulating so the, the bishop's officials hear about this rumor. So rumor is something that's like we've been thinking a lot about, but the, just specifically to think about your question about could the case itself spread information about what you're supposed to do? Yes as long as people had access to that case. So you would have to be literate. You might be one of the scribes in the church courts that was writing it down. But this is information which is very interesting and would probably be gossiped about a fair bit amongst the church court officials as well. I mean, you you can't know without being there but certainly gossip in towns, I mean, it's it's currency, it's a kind of a currency. The market centers in these little villages, you know, you say, have you heard about John Stybert and the humble bees and, you know, so people would know about it. It's interesting because Yorkshire, there were a lot of bee bowls. There was a lot of hmm. beekeeping. Bee bowls are the they're... Uh, beehives. Well, they're yes, modern beehives is what they would call them. They're kind of like wicker baskets for bees in that time. And so it's interesting to me that there's stories about bees from an area where there was a lot of concern for keeping them, you know.
2: I, I can give one example of exactly what you're talking about and here you'd have to go, and this is my last book is making magic in Elizabethan England and in that book there is a there is one form of magic in there which is a uh, it's a protective amulet and at the end of it it says as was proved uh, and I'm forgetting the guy's name now this has as proved by this one this this guy and the, the reference is back to a court case about a century earlier where this guy was up on charges of treason and came to the gallows and said I have certain things upon me which will not allow me to be harmed by anyone and they stripped him and they found magic objects on him and they took them off and hung him anyway and then just cut his throat just to make sure that he was actually dead so it's a very curious case because obviously I mean the later magic text that says that was proved by this guy is not clearly it's not very convincing because it didn't work <laughs> um, but it was clearly in it was clearly something that was the public knew about this case knew that protective magic was used and so yes there are cases that do find their way out of the courts into public conceptions into public ideas about magic
1: and into stories yes so if you think about the murder of sheriff ellen which ended up becoming a, a kind of a Robin Hood-like legend. Oh, it was a real story, and there was a real case, but yes. it, it was sort of spread around, and this is another Yorkshire story that, that I've worked on, but yeah. not as relevant here.
2: Yeah, so the, the processes are very complicated.
0: Yeah. I mean, it also just sounds like another, another important lesson for everyone at home. If you are wearing protective amulets and they're going to execute you, don't tell them that you are wearing the protective amulets. Duh! So they can continue to work. Just a lot of, you know, I, I rookie mistakes, own goals. Very disappointing, honestly, to see. Um, so speaking of rumor, there is a specter hanging over both of these cases, and that is the specter of Cardinal Woolsey. Because everyone seems to be very afraid of him as a magically operative man. <laughs> so could you talk a little bit about the the sort of scuttlebutt yes. floating around that Cardinal Woolsey is somehow, you know, this this dark figure orchestrating all sorts of nefarious this and that and like binding, you know, an important demon that makes everyone else's magic less... Less potent and all that. It's,
2: it's very weird. Yeah, he appears in the William Stapleton case. Well, the magicians that William Stapleton gets his gear from, who try to conjure a demon, Oberion, to get uh, to get them some treasure, and Oberion actually evidently appears to them and says like, hey guys, sorry, I'm working for Cardinal Wolsey, not available at the moment. Uh, catch you later. Um, and so they don't, they don't end up using the text, and then William Stapleton gets a hold of it later on, and he also appears in the William neville case and there it's it's he has supposed to have this ring of influence there it makes a little bit more sense because there's no evidence that Willsey's involved in magic at all i mean i think all the evidence suggests that he's exactly the kind of guy who wouldn't be involved and in it was far too calculating far too sensible and far too rational to be to be involved in anything of the kind in the period particularly in this position so it seems very very unlikely but he did have a spectacular rise to power and magic is frequently associated with people who have this, who come from nothing and, and suddenly are in these, in these incredible positions of power. And similarly with Thomas Cromwell, who, I mean, what's the son of a butcher, right? So we have, we have these men who have these spectacular political rises to power. And so that it makes sense that magic would be associated with him in that sense.
1: You see it happening with women too, who make stellar marriages. So Anne Boleyn was accused eventually of using some sortilage or or sorcery in order to capture Henry VIII. But there's a whole selection of women who come from somewhat lower nobility. So the Duchess of Gloucester, Eleanor, the Duchess of Gloucester was accused of using necromantic magic in order to capture the affections of her spouse.
0: And actually, so, you know, we're talking about at least in this book, a very masculine world. And I and I get the sense that there there are difficulties and hindrances to studying specifically the the historic role that, that women were playing in magic at this time, cunning women and so on. If one moving forward wanted to do more in the area of of looking at specifically cunning women, like where what sort of techniques might one employ to sort of look at those histories? Where where could developments be made? to do a better job in that realm?
1: Well, we hope we're going to be able to answer that question because that's actually part of our next project is looking at women in magic. That's where we're going. But one thing... That's occurred to me um, in the work that we're doing is you're never really going to find women like the great mages that you have at the Renaissance courts, who Frank is particularly familiar with, because you just women, first of all, don't have the kind of education Generally speaking, that would allow them to read those texts. And also, I mean, the kind of women who work in magic, cunning women, you tend to find them more amongst the urban, non elite classes. So finding them is hard. And finding them in court cases means they're there often for some other reason. So in our forthcoming book on common magicians or everyday magicians in Tudor England, there are some women who have books and who are clearly practicing magic and are clearly working as cunning women but finding them is hard they they fly below the radar.
2: There's a very interesting study that's been been done recently that, that looked at the differences between how men and Women magic practitioners are reported in the courts. And we'd, we're interested now in returning to the the, the the cases and actually to try and substantiate these claims in a sort of broader sense. But what uh, what Karen Jones argues is that in 40 percent of the cases, and this is consistent all the way through the 16th century, where women are reported, all we know is Marjorie so and so reported for witchcraft. That's all we know. That's all we have. We've got no idea what she was doing. She could have been doing high magic. She could have been doing low magic. She could have been doing healing. She could have been, you know, we have no idea what this is. And, of course, chances are she wasn't guilty of it at all. But where in the cases when there are men who were charged prior to about the middle of the 16th century, only 20 percent, uh, 20% of them were, you know, here's this guy presented for magic. So substantially fewer of them. Are not described in detail and after the middle of the 16th century if a man is accused of magic we have lots of details all this this is a very complicated way of saying all the evidentiary materials for finding out about women and magic are are challenging so this is, and yeah, this is our, our, seems our to be next based, project.
1: <laughs> seems to be based in an assumption that, yes, of course, if a woman is uh, sent up to court for practicing magic, well, she probably was. And so they, they don't bother to give a very fulsome explanation of what it is she's being accused of, whereas it may have been more unusual for a man to be accused, and therefore there's just more evidence given. But as we say, this is something that we're working on right now.
0: And actually, this, this brings up a... a t- thing i wanted to ask you about involving trying to discern events from court documents i mean in these sorts of situations where people your 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 primary witnesses are people who are presumably trying to massage the facts or omit facts so that they can get the most lenient punishment available to them how do you sort of parse through that sort of like epistemic problem of like everyone here is lying Mm -hmm. so what really happened
2: yeah, this is one I have to turn over to the court The court expert, and, and I was constantly stumbling over this one as a non-expert in court histories.
1: Well, um, yes, there's a, Natalie Zeman Davis, years ago now, has written this fantastic article called Fiction in the Archives, and the problem is you, you know... You can never assume that what someone is telling you in court is true. So you've always have to approach with your spidey sense saying like, all right, what's really going on here? It helps if you have other documents. It helps if you have witnesses. It helps so that, you know, if you just have one very slender case that just gives you a little bit of evidence, you're going to have a harder time extrapolating what's going on. Church courts are wonderful because if they're really concerned, then they go looking for witnesses who give depositions. And if you're lucky, you'll have enough depositions that you can then compare the stories. So say you have seven depositions, there's going to be a kernel of truth in there somewhere. So you can establish, okay, we've got a time, we've got a date, we've got, you know, at seven out of 10 people agreeing on that time and date, and then more or less agreeing on the event. So you're only going to get an approximation, but sometimes it's a better approximation or a worse one, depending on the nature Of the legal documents. But I think that's true even today, although we have forensics, right? But people still lie in court all the time.
2: Or offer partial accounts. Or
1: offer partial accounts in order to sort of cover up, so.
2: I think the other thing to the other useful comparison, for, particularly for people who are looking at this from a modern perspective um, or, you know, non-experts in the field, is, to, is that uh, just despite all of this, despite our, how, how difficult we found it to sort of see through the cases, this is far easier than in the case of witchcraft, witch trials where we have, in addition to the fact that everyone is very carefully conditioning their evidence in various ways, we have, in addition to this, that are pasted on top of this these sort of mythologies, which end up winding their way into the court cases, into the questions that are being asked to people into the confessions that people are forced into, into being made particularly on the continent where where torture is used and so forth so that it's it's even more difficult in some, some senses in those circumstances mm-hmm. to, to parse the details and to, to find out what's going on underneath all of it
1: yes in England it's really important to know that they na- they didn't use torture in order to get a confession and as soon as you start using torture as they did on the continent but not in England then you're into a whole new set of issues about how, how can you trust your evidence
0: this actually so there, there's one last thing I wanted to ask before before we before we close out this seems to be a time of transition a little bit too in terms of these things that are happening Is uh, I think in the the William Neville case for example we point to one of the manuscripts involved in that or sort of associated with that case is edited in such a way that the, the way in which demons are addressed becomes less obsequious This is your area. That's that's such a strange text. Where is this change coming from? Or like, let's talk about this change because I'm being kind of vague here. So like, what's going on?
2: Okay, I'll tr- oh, this is, it's, a, it's a complicated story. Many of the source texts for Western ceremonial magic are from Arabic and uh, Hebrew versions of uh, potentially earlier texts. The roots are some of them even Sanskrit, certainly pre-Arabic sources or ancient sources. And in many of those, the spirits that are being conjured are like a planetary spirit, in which case, especially if it's a planetary religion, as we see in the case of the Sabaeans, for example, There's no problem being obsequious to, you're gonna conjure the spirit of Mars, you better bloody well be obsequious, right? It makes sense. So this stuff finds its way into the magic tradition and is never in, when, when it, when it gets Christianized in the 12th and 13th century, much of this is wiped out because the idea in the Christian context, when you're conjuring a demon, the idea is you conjure it by the power of God. You've got power of God on your side. And so you can push demons around. The idea is straight out of the Bible, you know, that you can cast out a demon. It's in Acts, right? Christians can do it in the name of Jesus. And it's just sort of a, they figure it's just a slight logical step. Well, if I can cast a demon, surely I can make it do something for me. Control it. I can control it. So we have an overlay of two different principles here. We have these earlier principles of obsequious relation to these spirits or domination of them. And the obsequious stuff doesn't ever quite entirely disappear. <laughs> and so it's there and in, in the literature. And these guys, it's clear that... In the one document that I mentioned there, that someone read it after that was was using it and said, "No, this is inappropriate," and actually crossed those sections out. It said, "No, you should not be obsequious to the demon in this kind of way. Um, you have to just command it." So had a clear sense of what the appropriate mythology was, but it's a kind of a it's a kind of a messy tradition that's not as systematic as as one might like to think. <laughs>
0: yeah. And actually, um, speaking of these sorts of changes, there is one final thing that this question might be too big, right? This might be its own interview. So if you if you want to just say a one sentence answer and then and then leave it hanging in the air, that's totally fine. Like, I recognize that what I'm doing is a bit um, it's not going to necessarily work out. But like we've got this time period where the the trials that involve witchcraft are clearly the people who couldn't help but get caught. It's it's all it's a bit. Honestly, it's it's almost charming in in how poorly done a lot of this is. And it doesn't seem like anything that anyone would be like terribly frightened of. So where how do we get from this in a relatively short period of time where where witchcraft is sort of, you know, it's it's it almost feels like on the level of like public drunkenness or everyone has a cousin who's always going into jail. And it gets to it gets to like a state of actual paranoia and fear, and 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 much more in the way of like this is, you know, we we go from um, something sort of goofy to something closer to like a red scare almost.
2: It's, it's the old question, and and I mean, it's been it's been asked again and again and again and again, and I think it's even more poignant if you recognize that. Most of the witch trials, 75% of them occurred in southwestern Germany, um, and there were very, very large areas where there weren't any witch trials at all. So it's hardly, it's not, it's it's a very sp- sporadic thing. So it does, it does prompt the question of, okay, why does this happen? Why does it happen here? Why does it happen at this point? Neither of us are historians of witchcraft. <laughs>
1: Although interesting, I just finished giving my class the lecture on witchcraft. So I'm just thinking about it. I mean, part of and here the witchcraft historians will have to speak for themselves. But what happens is the the Reformation comes along and Mm -hmm. breaks apart in many parts of Christendom, old traditional ways of dealing with scary, bad things like maleficium, like people doing evil in some kind of magic way. And I think it's very instructive when you look at nations who build themselves around a confession, so around their belief in either Protestantism or or traditional Roman Catholicism and some of the other more radical faiths, that when the state becomes the defender of the faith, becomes the same as the church that's uh, trying to prevent heresy, then you unleash of legal force against people who are scary, who are heretics, who are, you know, uh, who are deemed to be that, and it becomes a much more fearful kind of of thing, yeah. right? A much more violent, more frightening sort of accusation. So, you, you we've seen it historically, right? I mean, in some ways they're like Bolsheviks, you know, really, really insisting on the doctrine of their beliefs being applied evenly everywhere and that they're going to do it through the courts and through other forms of violence. So that's a short answer.
2: Yeah, it's a tricky, it's a tricky, it's a tricky question to answer. And, and uh, as I said, the historians of witchcraft have, have long talked about, like, what What are all the pieces? It's certainly the confessional state in the latter part of the 16th century is a really important piece of that puzzle.
1: Reintroduction um, of Roman law. The fact
2: that you're reintroducing Roman law where you need a confession and where you can use torture to get it. Yep. I mean, this is a bad combination. It's a Europe, the European state, curiously not having really strong central power. So, I mean, the, England is, there, the part of the reason there were so few witch trials in England was you've got a really strong, rationalized, centralized legal system. Mm-hmm. Similarly with France, um, where where you could appeal this to higher courts, and the higher courts would say uh, no. And so we actually have quite a few of we have witchcraft, witch trials, or witch cases being overturned in France, whereas another case is not. So it's a it's a it's a really complicated story. Part of what we're trying to do in this book and in the next one, uh, Everyday Magicians, is trying to trace and look at. What is the kind of, at least in England, what's this normal state of affairs in the treatment of magic prior to the witch trials, which get weird mm-hmm. and are actually more the exception to the rule than the rule itself? So, what's happening in every, in, in, you know, how, how does, how, how do authorities deal with this under normal circumstances?
1: Everyday magic.
2: Everyday, everyday magicians and everyday prosecutions of everyday mm-hmm. magicians is kind of what we're trying to do.
0: That's really I'm I am you know having just finished this book I am very excited for this next one, when it emerges. What what is the what is the timeline on that one?
1: It's with the publisher now, and there I guess we'll get changes back. Uh, whoever is doing the peer reviews, we'll hear from them. Um, so it it could be what six to eight months before it's going into any uh, press, I guess.
2: Assuming everyone's happy. Assuming
0: with everybody it. likes it, you know. And this is the same publisher as. Yes. Yeah. Which I mean, the works that they're putting out, incredibly accessible, right? Like an exciting kind of. Development. They're great to work with too.
1: It's such a, they're such a great group of people at that press. Yeah.
2: And and the price is right.
0: Yeah, not to not to get crass about this or anything, but like you know, it's it's very notable that a Scholastic work going for what did you say, twenty three dollars?
1: I think twenty three or twenty eight. I can't remember U S. It's very inexpensive.
2: Under a little 30... more in Canada. <laughs> thirty bucks U.S. So that's a, it's a, it's a fine thing. It...
0: So people really have no excuse not to buy this book.
2: Absolutely. Uh-huh. So.
0: <laughs> buy two uh, copies. Exactly. <laughs> Give
1: one to your grandma.
0: You got friends, I assume, unless, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know who really is listening to this show. I have some, some information about where they are geographically, but that doesn't really tell me about, it doesn't matter. Um, But like, um, <laughs> this has been such a joy. Thank you so much for being on. This is, this was great. Thank you so much to Frank Klassen and Sharon Wright. This was really wonderful and I will put a link in the show notes to where you can buy the Magic of Rogues and also some links in case you want to check out uh, William Neville's Castle of Pleasure or that book on Scotland that we got the Play Magic Minute from. Um, I'm also gonna put uh, some links in the show notes. I as you're probably already aware, Uh, Things are getting very rough in the Gaza Strip right now. So I'm going to put some links to places where you can throw some money to organizations that are trying to help people on the ground who are undergoing, you know, shortages of clean water and electricity and money at the best of times and are now also dealing with airstrikes from a nuclear power funded by the US government. So check out those links, check out the book. And this has been Wish Hassle. Our theme music is performed by Sebastian Baverstam and recorded by Edward Lee. Good luck with the work ahead.